the theme for November is looking at how we, as human beings, tend to put life into different boxes, into categories. For example, there is the category of the ordinary stuff, the necessary, the mundane stuff, you know, doing the dishes, brushing your teeth, doing the laundry. Then there's this other category, the spiritual stuff that we come probably here to do or have an altar at home for, you know, the sacred stuff we read about, the five practices, the meditating, the affirmative prayer, the acts of selfless service, all of that. And then the third category is, well, everything else that doesn't fit. It's the not-so-spiritual stuff. Call it the secular stuff or the profane. I love that word. You know, that includes typically like voting and maybe socializing and all the stuff that doesn't fit into spiritual or mundane. So at the end of the month, hopefully we will have an aha realization that, oh my, all of these things are really aspects of each other. They're connected and maybe we'll even realize that there are no separate boxes That there's just one box called life that holds everything. And so we're going to be diving into that box today to look at it together. So let's start with taking a look at how our brains work. Because your brain, probably like mine, knows how to categorize and to judge and to assess and to compare, which is a very good thing. It's an important function of being in the world. And here's where it can get me into trouble. Because not only is my brain good at categorizing, it's also very good at leading me to incorrect assessments. Why? Well, because it has a tendency to make stuff up (laughs) and add meaning when there isn't any meaning there. And when it does that, it cuts me off from what might actually be happening. And then I get to live inside of my opinion. Not really experiencing life as it is or is not. I'm currently teaching a class we're halfway through. It's called Self-Mastery. It's based on the the Four Agreements of Don Miguel Ruiz. And uh, we used to do an exercise in it. But you know when you repeat an exercise, people start to know what it is. So we haven't done it in a while. But this is what would happen. We would be teaching the class on making assumptions. And um, during the class, I'd just be doing the lecture part. And um, the class assistants, who had been prepared in advance would come walking into the class down the center aisle ceremoniously with a candle, not saying a word, and they'd walk right to the front where a little altar had been placed, and they would place the candle down and then turn around and walk out one at a time. And we would make no reference to it, not explain it at all, and just observe. And you could see all the different reactions as some students were like, trying to redirect their attention to the class and other people getting visibly agitated and some people starting to get anxious. And I remember one class, finally, a student stood up and said, what is going on? (laughs) And it helped us pause to say, well, what is going on? So that we could sample the different assumptions that were being made. 
One person said, you designed this to distract us. One person said, something very important must have happened in the world, and I didn't pay attention. Some person said, well, um, well, you know, you, you can imagine all of the very different things that came up from the exercise taking place. And in the absence of explanation, all of the brains made up meaning. Now, this exercise helped me, me so much to look at how I make up stuff. And that when I'm doing that, I can very, very easily miss out on being available to something fresh and innocent, a direct experience of what is. The exercise helped me to see that sometimes I am missing out on something because I'm not giving that something a chance. I'm too much in a hurry to explain, rationalize, analyze. The exercise taught me to be a little more curious about what I think I know. And so I got to thinking, what if all the stuff in my life, like the stuff that I think is boring, like doing the dishes, what if it could really have in it, built into it, something powerful? What if it could teach me something about the big picture of things? It did for Brother Lawrence a spiritual teacher, because he described how many of the deepest spiritual insights that he had came while doing deeply ordinary things, like washing the dishes, like cooking, like folding the laundry. And so he made a habit of saying a short prayer before he started whatever task he was doing to help him recognize the presence of something spiritual in whatever he was about to do. And I'm imagining that practice for me and, and for you. I'm imagining saying a short, reminding, focusing phrase before I do the laundry. Spirit expresses through my hands. Or before I go shopping, divine guidance establishes my choices. Or before I go on a date, divine intelligence works through my words and my actions. Oh, I like that. So the first point today is to become aware of how my brain works. And then the second point is to ask myself, am I looking in the right direction? Or better way to say it, am I looking at the right things in life? Or even better way to say it, am I seeing actually what I'm looking at? So let me try to explain what I mean with those questions. I took my first painting class like, oh, it seems like a hundred million years ago. I took this class, and on the very first lesson of the very first day, the teacher taught us, well, she said, we're going to paint the sky. She took us all outside, and I thought she was crazy because she asked us to look at the sky and to describe the color. So I said, as many of the students did, it's blue. <laughs> sky blue, it even has a name. And she was so excited. And she said, but is it? 
Is it really? She said, look at it. Really look at it. Now, don't look at it with your ordinary eyes. You have to look like lovers do. You've got to find the color in the sky. And then she said, can you see it? Can you see the magenta? Can you see the purple? Can you see the places where it's deeper and where it's more shallow? Can you see the shapes and the places where it's changing? She was on fire. And I tell you, I have never looked at the sky in the same way again since that class. Just like when I was walking around looking at the art exhibit on Friday. We had the most wonderful art show on Friday. So terrific. I want to thank all of the artists and the donors and the people who purchased the art. It's a fundraiser for us. And the art is still available. Some of it is available to see Because what makes this art show different from previous ones, if you purchase the art today, you can take it home. That's why there is different art. There's more art in the the, uh, Grinton Chapel. It'll be coming out and rotating. So it's all there. And do you know we sold nearly $7,000 worth of art? But I digress. I bring it up because today you have an opportunity right out there to look slowly like lovers do, with acceptance and curiosity and admiration. Oh, these are important qualities. Some of you may remember Betty Edwards' book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, a beautiful book, which is a guide not only for beginners for how to draw, but for how to see She shows the students not only how to look at the object they want to draw, but also at the spaces and the shapes that are created around the object. They call it the negative space. And to draw from that perspective of looking slowly at what it is so that the object can show itself to you. I heard about a photographer who joined a local camera club to practice photography. And the club would visit places to practice taking photographs of natural, beautiful expressions. Now, the photographer would go along and he would pay attention to where all of the students were looking. And then he would turn around 180 degrees and look in the opposite direction to see what was there. And he ended up being the one taking award-winning photographs. Because while everyone was looking at the obvious, he was finding beauty in the ordinary, unattended places. I love that story. Because it reminds me how much, well, how much I love, (laughs) my partner calls it, walking the planet. When I visit other cities, because I'm fine not going to the big tourist attractions. I like walking through the neighborhoods. I like even walking through industrial areas. I like going off the beaten track. I want to see where the crowd isn't going. When I was 21, I went to Paris for the first time to visit it. And I got a map. Because in those days, we didn't have phones. We still had to think for ourselves. Do you remember that? Vaguely. 
I could look it up on my phone. <laughs> anyway, I got a map and I noticed how many small parks, city parks, that were all over Paris. And so I made it an adventure of trying to visit as many of the parks as I could. And I even traced it along the map. It took me two days and I didn't finish it. But oh, what a remarkable experience. It's imprinted upon my memory because I felt like I really saw a Paris that you don't see on a postcard. Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, he talked to a student, a new student of Zen Buddhism, and out of curiosity, he asked the student what spiritual insights he had learned in his first year of study. He was fully expecting to hear of some major revelation. But the guy said just that in his first year of the meditative life, He learned to open and close doors. He learned the quiet discipline of not acting impulsively. He learned the difference between closing a door and closing a door. Slamming it or closing it and so on. He learned to be present for what he was doing and not rushing into the next experience without seeing what was being done. I love that answer. Because it reminds me how doing the simple things, the mundane things in life with focus can be and is a significant spiritual practice. Now, the reason why I love this so much is because society can and often does condition us to be focused on the next big big thing, the next exciting thing, the thing that you should have, the most important the trendiest, the most stimulating. Now, there isn't a thing wrong with all of that. It's exciting. There is also at the same time this question that is percolating in me. It's a what-if question that I'm asking myself. What if satisfaction, experience, engagement, meaning, is also and persistently available right wherever I am in the smallest to the largest things I do. You know, someone said it like this. I'll read it to you. We are addicted to stimulation and experiences. Now, we may spend 10 minutes a day in spiritual meditation perhaps with a restless mind, and then head out to a busy, restless day, and then finally we'll fall asleep for a restless sleep. Because our thoughts may be in the past or the future, but not here. Oh, wow. That hit me. So I'm thinking maybe I can be a little more like that student photographer and practice turning in the opposite direction of social conditioning and try going in the 
opposite direction sometimes of whatever it is I tell myself I need to have, I need to be, I need to feel, I need to experience. I'm going to try that. And, and, and I could, and I'm inviting you to consider this, I could make this whole next week about seeing the sacred in exactly anything I'm doing. So instead of the sacred being an hour on Sunday, it could grow. I might even take it a step further. Maybe I could stop waiting for something exciting, perfect, Something satisfying, something brilliant, something meaningful, something nice, something validating, something interesting, something meaningful to happen. And instead, look at life like a lover would and see it with kind-hearted curiosity, with all of its faults and its failings and see it. So the first point today is have a look at how the brain works. And second point is pay attention to where I'm looking. And then the third point is this. Because life continues anyway, so engage. <sighs> there is a well-known Zen Buddhism saying about enlightenment. You probably know it. It comes in the form of a question. The question is, what comes after enlightenment? And here's the answer. Before enlightenment, say it with me, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, say it with me, chop wood, carry water. It's a reminder that we humans get to deal with life on the mundane level, no matter how spiritual we are. We still have to do the things. The things that are part of the ordinary, regular, normal, sometimes so-called boring life stuff. We still have to relate to each other. We still have to learn to communicate better. We still have to take care of each other. We still have to put up with each other. We still have get to bump into each other. And no religion and no spiritual practice smooths out and takes away the mundane. Ha! We still have to learn how to hear each other. We still have to learn how to talk about difficult and irreconcilable issues like about what's going on in Palestine and Israel. Did you know that the Interfaith Council of Sonoma County is holding, they're hosting an online discussion tomorrow, that's Monday, November the 6th, noon to 1.30 p.m.? And there will be information on our website today. And they're holding it with the intention to engage with these questions. I'll read from their website. How do we, as an interfaith community, grapple with this situation? How do we deal with the blame game? How do we stay focused on human rights? How do we deal with the anguish and despair over the horror of mass violence? 
How do we hold space for concerned people who hold diverse and even mutually antagonistic views so that they can be expressed? You see, we still get to deal with that. That's tomorrow. 11.06, Monday, November 6, noon to 1.30 p.m. So what I'm saying today is this. Can I let this month, and it's an invitation for you to, can I let it be about seeing all aspects of life, all the things I get to do, the big, the small, the painful, the difficult, the challenging, can I let it all fall into the box that's called valid? Call it important and approach it the practice of being with what's in that box with as much kind-hearted curiosity as I can. Now, here's a worthy challenge for the week. See if you can remember to check in with yourself throughout each day this week, especially when you're doing something that falls into the boring or annoying or mundane category and ask yourself, am I paying attention to this moment? And if you're not, that's okay. Just take a breath and see if you can refocus on what it is you're doing and relax into it. And then see if you can be curious and ask yourself the question, what if, hypothetically speaking, this is the most important thing I could be doing right now, not just for me, but for my loved ones? or for someone I don't even know who may need to see this being done in a certain way, or for someone who will be impacted by generations to come, or for the planet. Oh, I'm going to try that. Or you know what you could do also? Try setting an alarm on your smartphone, and then when it goes off, pause and ask yourself, am I really here And if your mind was somewhere else, that's okay. It's no big deal. Just gently bring it back to what's happening. And I believe that's a way to start seeing everything, even taking out the trash, as something that's kind of special. Now, before we meditate, I want to invite you to join me on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m., to continue the exploration of the ordinary as a pathway into peace. I'm going to talk about how when I started and found Science of Mind, I just accepted it on the ground floor as face value. And then how as time developed and I became more aware of the subtleties of how the mind and emotions work, it evolved and changed. And I'm going in a big circle back to the beginning and going back to basic practices, you know, I'd really love to see you there on Wednesday. Um, so think about it. I call it our midweek spiritual boost. It's an informal gathering, and it's de designed specifically to help keep our collective awareness on those practices that refocus our minds on the self within the self that dwells within, so that we can live more fully from it. So I look forward to seeing you there. Now I invite you to take a deep breath in with me and to exhale, letting your eyes close as we engage in a moment of inward contemplation. There is one life. 
that is the container and the origin of all that is. There is one life that expresses itself through me and through each person here, through all events, and that is present in all time and all dimensions. There is one life. That life is my life right now. And it contains everything and nothing is absent from it, which is why I call it perfect, meaning nothing absent. And as I dwell upon this with everyone here in this sanctuary, I realize then that I am in every moment and every time in the middle of what I may rightly be called wholeness or holiness. Notwithstanding the challenges and difficulties and complications and paradoxes that arise out of this life, I remain at the center with everyone of this deep, self-generated wholeness. And from that perspective, then I let my eyes see and my ears hear and my senses intuit and my mind be still so that I may take my place in the community of beings right now as an open-hearted, generous, conscious being. I let the gratitude that is associated with this awareness carry me through the days to come so that I remain, remain steadfast in my commitment to keep loving and to keep engaging and to keep creating and to stay curious. And I release this word into that aspect of the divine that we call the law, meaning the reflective, responsive, yes mechanism of creation that is working through us right now. And I invite you to seal this moment of contemplation by saying with me the words, and so it is. <laughs>